Welcome to the Band of History. We're back with another interview, and this week we're talking to Sandra Tuzzi, an author who gained acclaim for her book Muddy Waters, The Mojo Man, and what Blues Magazine Living Blues called a first-rate biography. Now she is back with a new book, a biography on Levon Helm entitled Levon Helm From Down in the Delta to the Birth of the Band and Beyond. I interviewed Sandra in early March on the onset of COVID-19. At that point, the book was going to be released in June and has since been pushed back to August, hence why the interview is coming out now. Sandra was a lovely individual to talk to, and we had a great time talking about the band, talking about Levon, and so much more. So over the course of the next 40 minutes, you're going to be hearing an interview I conducted with Sandra. I hope you get to learn a lot about Levon and about her process about writing about Levon. So make sure you stick around till the end where we'll give you some information about where you can go and purchase this book and leave a great review after you read it. So this is my interview with Sandra Tuzzi. Do you remember your first memory or moments uh, that you heard about the band? Well, I remember as a teenager hearing about the band um, and and Levon was just the coolest guy. I remember thinking that. Um, I wasn't, at first I wasn't really into the, the first two albums. I was more focused on blues at that time, um, but um, I was definitely aware of them. And then uh, later on, um, I, I've seen Levon um, in concert and also, I interviewed him for my book on Muddy Waters. And Levon was a subject you approached for the book, right? Well, it was a phone interview. And uh, he had no idea who I was, except I was just writing a book on Muddy Waters. But uh, the thing that struck me was that it was like talking with an old friend. He had such warmth and generosity and... Um, he was um, really forthcoming and very interested in my project. And then at the end of the interview, he said, no, you've got to promise me something. Promise me this. Promise me that call me back in two weeks, please, because there might be something I've forgotten to say. And uh, I might want to uh, add more to the interview. So I did that. And he was so friendly again. It was just amazing. And um, of course, as I, um, I didn't know at the time, but he was like that with everybody. He just made everyone feel like you were his best friend. Uh, that's something that I've heard over and over again. It was just a remarkable facility he had for putting people at ease and uh, you know, making them feel welcome. And to put it into context for our listeners, what year did you interview Levon? via the phone. That was 1996. Now, 96 was post-original band, and he had done a lot of solo work and work with other individuals. And I'm pretty sure this was prior to the cancer diagnosis, or was this around the same time? It was prior. Um, I don't remember hearing any of that gravelly um, aspect to his voice that you could hear in some of those later albums. So yes, it was, uh, he was diagnosed in uh, 1999, 1998, 99. 
98. It was a couple of years after I interviewed him that he was diagnosed. And now you're in 2020. It's almost been 20 years after that initial interview. What led you to write a book about Levon now? Well, um, yes, it took me 20 years to come up with another subject. I don't move quickly. Um, it was really important to me. Well, I wanted to write another book. I had the time um, and I just thought I've got at least one more in me. I really needed to write about someone that I respected and liked um, because you're spending years with this person essentially and you have to also really enjoy their music. So that um, narrowed it down somewhat. And I remember one day uh, in early 2016 thinking, I gotta find someone just like Levon, someone I really, really like. And then, you know, of course, duh. It, it, I thought, well, why not Levon? I thought that there was a lot more to say besides what he'd written in his autobiography. So that was what got me started. With someone like Lee Von Helm, who had a fairly long career, there are so many avenues you could go down to start. Where did you begin with your research? I started, I was living in Toronto, and I started with the Toronto Public Library, which is just a fabulous resource. I found that with my Muddy Waters research as well. So I just did, researched everything I could get a hold of in the um the library there, and that's when where I started. And um, soon after I began, I realized, gee, I really don't know much about drums as an instrument. So then I, I decided I had to learn drumming. So I started taking drum lessons. So that really helped a lot. Um, and then after that. Uh, it was time to start interviewing people. And then I went down to Arkansas and interviewed Levon's um, friends and musicians that he worked with down there. That's incredible. And you actually went and learned to play the drums. I'm assuming that helped you in a way to put yourself in the shoes of a drummer like Levon? Yes. Well, you know, I'm not a musician. I have no musical talent, but I love to try. So... Um, I had taken guitar lessons a long time ago. Um, and again, I'm no good, but um, I enjoy it. So yes, I just realized that how can I write about a drummer if I really don't know much about the instrument? So I'd never sat behind a drum kit, for instance. So I just thought, well, that was something I really had to do. And uh, it's become a passion of mine. I just love it. Now, you mentioned you went down to Arkansas and interviewed a lot of his friends and family. It's quite well known that members of the band's extended family are quite private and often don't like to talk uh, to outsiders. How did you approach reaching out to them and getting them to speak so candidly? Well, uh, you're right. A lot, most people that knew Levon hold their memories of him. Very, That's a very precious thing for them. There were a few people who told me that they just didn't want to share that. Um, there was somebody else who was a bit wary because you know he didn't know who I was. And um, 
So he did his interview at the University of Arkansas with somebody he knew, but I got to submit questions. Um, but yes, you're right. Um, it, that these people felt towards Levon and still feel, I mean, there are men that would uh, choke up just talking about him. And this is years after his death. So they, they held those memories very, they were very precious to them. But um, I was amazed at how open these people were um, in Arkansas that I, you know, I was a stranger. I just showed up and, uh, you know, one person would introduce me to the next person. And uh, as I traveled across the state, I got to meet quite a few people that had um, personal ties to leave on. Can you walk us through some of the largest challenges you had when writing this? I find the whole interviewing process uncomfortable, <laughs> quite frankly, but um, it all worked out. Um, one thing that wasn't that most most musicians um, that you write about, their career sort of peters out in maybe late middle age. But the one thing that was easier, I guess, and it was easier to create more interest with the Levon book is that he just went full steam right to the very end. And not only that, but he you know, won three Grammy Awards in the last years of his life. So he, so it was, you know, some books would just, um, you'd lose interest near the end, you know, the person might just retire and, and live quietly, but um, it was just the opposite with Levon. So that was something that made it easier. Um, one thing that I realized from doing my research was that there was hardly anything written about what Levon did when he quit the band um, when, during the, the first Dylan tour. And uh, he just skips over it, really, in his autobiography. So that was something I, I really wanted to know because that was almost two years. And um, so that was something that I wasn't sure I could find out much about that. But... Um, I found out quite a bit, actually. You're right. It really glosses over it a bit, whether it is the Dylan period or even periods after that. This is a question that links up with the listener question we'll get to later, but what was the most interesting thing you learned about that two-year period? He lived in a uh, building in Los Angeles that was full of musicians, and Bobby Keys, who became the sax player for the Stones, was one of his best friends there. So <clears throat> they hung out a lot. And then there was a big contingent of musicians from Oklahoma, including um, Jesse Ed Davis, um, JJ Kale, um, Jimmy Carstein, and a bunch of others. And they would all congregate at Leon Russell's house. So there was a lot of music going on there. And as well, um, Levon tried getting a couple of bands together. And so it was just kind of an interesting period. I don't know that he progressed too much musically, but that's not entirely true either, because when he traveled um, and stayed with his friends in Memphis, he was hanging out a lot with the musicians on Beale Street. Um, a lot of the Black musicians, um, like the um, DMGs. And so, so he 
would have picked up a lot of influence there, I'm sure. Now, you interviewed a lot of people for this project, and the book is brimming with quotes and stories. Was there someone that surprised you when you were interviewing them? Well, one person that comes to mind is David Clayton Thomas. Um, I hadn't even really thought of the connection there, but of course there was one in the early days in Young Street, and then they both lived in Woodstock at the same time. And I had a connection with David because um, in Toronto, I was, a, I was a book editor and worked on his autobiography. So um, he was kind enough to talk to me. And I thought his um, explanation of what he called the Toronto sound was very interesting about how all these different influences were coming together in Toronto in those early days and uh, how there definitely was a Toronto sound. Now, you can't write a book about Levon without talking about Robbie and Levon's relationship. Uh, how did you approach that subject that is often getting the fan base into a tizzy? Well, I really wanted uh, Levon to have a voice here. Um, as you know, all we hear now is Robbie's point of view, Robbie Robertson's point of view. Um, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but um, as a lot of people know, Levon had definite ideas about the songwriting issue. And um, I just wanted to bring up some points that I think that maybe people don't know about. Your ability to talk to people who were present during the band's time definitely helped bolster Levon's claims. Now, did you talk to Robbie Robertson while writing? I definitely wanted to go down that path, but um, Robbie Robertson, I guess, did not. He wouldn't speak with me. I should say that lots of other people had opinions, that's for sure. Um, old friends of Levon's were quite definite um, in saying that uh, Levon was definitely um, contributed to song. Your book does a great job at defining the songwriting process and going into and going into depth to help explain that to the reader, which I think is much appreciated. Now, with only two band members left and Robbie not really talking, how did you tackle learning about Richard and Rick, who are no longer with us? Well, as I say, it started with just book and article research. And so I looked at as much as I could find. Um, I have an enormous amount of notes on it. Um, there's so much that couldn't even be put in the book. Um, but yes, that was the basis of it. And then um, reading that, would certain questions would come up. So if I was speaking with someone who was around at that time, I would ask them if they knew about certain things. So that was really how I did it. Um, combination of of uh, just the book research and um, interviews. Specifically with Garth, he can be a tough interview. Did you interview him for this project? No, um, a photographer that I met through this book um, has connections to Garth. And so I tried to get to him that way, but there was just no response. Now, my favorite part of the book was the post-band part where Levon was working on a lot of different projects and various bands. It seems that there were a lot of challenges, but also a ton of great memories. 
What was your favorite part about detailing his life post the late 1970s into the 80s and 90s? Wow, there was a lot there. I mean, um, it was from the um, the Ringo Starr and the All Star Band. That was a real high point. Um, and there's an interesting stories about that in the book. Um, and you're right, the barn burners is, is an interesting aspect of his life because this was after he had had a surgery on his throat for his cancer and he could no longer sing. And he was very bitter at the time about um, the fact that he had so many financial struggles and then his health was gone and and he was just fed up with the band and he couldn't sing and so he started this blues band and um, he picked these a group of young um, blues players in the um, in the New York State area and um, and asked if he could join them. <laughs> Uh, an amazing story. Um, I was speaking with Pat O'Shea and he just, you know, it was just an amazing thing for a young blues player to have Levon Helm say, do you think I could join your band? Yeah. And, uh, so there was that. And then, of course, after that came the Midnight Rambles and um, a lot more success. Now, the barn burners are often forgotten, erased. Why do you think that is compared to, say, his legacy with the Midnight Rambles? Well, people that were involved with the Barn Burners, they don't quite understand it. Pat O'Shea was just sort of cut out of Levon's life all of a sudden. He didn't understand what was going on. And then the Midnight Rambles started. Um, a lot of people blame... Um, Levon's new manager at that time. She was um, was hard to get to Levon. His old friends who were used to just phoning him up um, were finding that they weren't able to get through to him. So there was suddenly this cordon put around him. Um, and I don't know why they felt the new um, people in charge of the Midnight Rambles felt that they had to try to erase the memory of the barn burners, but that's what happened. And um, the new manager just loved Lee Vaughn. She was one of the people who didn't want to talk about him because he, her memories of him were so precious. But um, yeah, there was a definite break there with his past. Now, another thing that is often erased is the last three studio albums of the band recorded in the 90s. Were you able to glean anything interesting to help write about this part of his life? Well, one thing is that Levon was co-writing songs. Um, I think that shows that Levon was uh, a co-songwriter. He never claimed to be a sole songwriter, but um, people I spoke with who played with him on those later albums um, all said that he pulled his weight that way. So that was one thing I found interesting. Um, the um, It was also interesting to hear about the relationships um, between uh, the remaining band members, how they got along, and um, sometimes they didn't get along, but the, you know, there was a definite love there. 
Now, Levon's relationship with Amy is something that was oftentimes important to him, and he, he talked about it a lot. And with some of the dark times during his cancer treatment and periods before that, Amy really wasn't part of his life, but ended up taking care of him and really being there as a support system for him. Can you tell us a little bit about that mended relationship? Well, you're right. Um, I was told that they they weren't that close prior to his cancer diagnosis. And uh, Butch Detter, who was the road manager at the time, he called Amy and said, look, you've got to just let the past be the past. Your father needs you now. And she came right away and she was like a rock for him. He, um, he admitted that he was scared, but he acted like he wasn't um, for Amy's sake. And uh, she just, she called him her hero for the way he behaved during that whole time. It also seems that Levon mellowed out a lot during this period. He was known to be kind of a hothead, uh, a nice guy, but definitely a hothead. Do you think that the cancer changed his life in a lot of ways? And in, in, in coming out of that, it led to a life that was a lot more positive in outcomes? Well, I think during the 90s, it, there were a lot of struggles and his barn burnt down and the cancer. And, and it was, a you know, there were some terrible times for him. And yes, the, the barn burners have said that he was really difficult at a lot of the time. Um, but you don't hear that after he comes out of that period and starts to be able to sing again and things are better financially and the midnight rambles are going and um, people describe him as happy during that last part of his life um, you know he was he got back to the roots um, music that he loved so much he was successful uh, he was with his daughter so yeah there was definitely a change there I think between the 90s and the 2000s. He is a rare musician that had a huge late career boost. He won Grammys and had a ton of success with his albums and live albums. What do you think it was that led to that success? Was it the people around him, a new passion, etc.? I, I think it had a lot to do with working with these younger musicians like Larry Campbell and Teresa Williams and his daughter. Um, I and, and as well, just the fact that he was getting his voice back and, and he was um, learning to sing again and getting his confidence back and then thinking about, you know, going back to the beginning of his life, thinking about the songs that he sang with his parents back in Turkey Scratch. Now, do you think Levon was really ever concerned about leaving a legacy behind? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I think maybe his what he would want to leave behind was an appreciation of that the music he grew up with i think that would probably be one of the things and um um i yeah just an appreciation of that those good songs that he loved as a child and now we have some listener questions the first one is from Steve. I would like to know about Levon's views on race. Robbie mentioned in his book that Levon was quite progressive and had issues with some of the Southern beliefs. Um, yes, he definitely took a stand. His mother was um, was his guide in this. Um, she was 
adamant that all races needed to be treated the same. So he grew up in a segregated society. Um, you know, they uh, didn't, black and white people didn't mix at school or church. But um, for instance, that Sam Tillman was a black man who lived down the road and he thought of Sam as almost a family member. Um, later on, um, when the band was, uh, the original band was together uh, and they were down in Arkansas, um, Levon uh, wanted to, uh, jam with Sonny Boy Williamson. So they found him in Helena and were jamming with him. And uh, the police came and wouldn't let, said, you can't stay here. They were at a white motel right. and, um, and said they had to go. So Sonny Boy said, well, let's go to this place he knew in Helena. So they went there and then the police came and made them leave there because there were blacks and whites together. And uh, Anna Lee says that he was very embarrassed about that part of the South. I really, really bothered him. And uh, race was not an issue with him at all. If he liked to, he liked to. It didn't matter what the color of your skin was. Another question here from Shay. What was the most surprising thing you found out about Levon? Something that you weren't expecting? Well, one of them was how he was so universally loved. I mean, um, people appreciate Robbie Robertson as a musician and um, the other members of the band, but for for some reason, the love that uh, expressed towards Levon was just remarkable. Uh, so I didn't realize that when I started. Um, I also didn't realize the wide swath of music genres that Levon embraced throughout his life. Um, you don't see that with very many musicians. They usually stick with one genre, but uh, Levon just went from um, blues, rockabilly, rock, um, back to blues and then roots and in and in Roots, he was exploring country and folk music. And it was just remarkable. And he was a master at all of it. Another one here. There's a lot of speculation about why Levon left the 1966 Dylan tour. What do you think it was based off of your research? Well, the obvious one is the fact that they were being booed night after night because the folk purists didn't like the fact that Dylan, um, the second half of his shows was electric. Uh, so they would boo as soon as uh, Levon's drum kit was taken on stage. But um, Paul Berry, who was a lifelong friend of Levon's, he said to me that he thought Levon was stronger than that, that it wasn't just that. It was the fact that Levon didn't really want to be a sideman again. You know, they had uh, left Ronnie Hawkins because they felt that they um, had outgrown him. And uh, here they were backing Bob Dylan. And he just thought that they they had something to say themselves and they didn't need to have somebody else stand in front of them. Uh, so that was another definite reason I feel that um, he just had had enough. And lastly, what is your favorite band song? I know it's a tough one. 
there are the obvious choices, but one song I just love is Blind Willie McTell. Um, you know, it was a later song. It's from um, Jericho, but I love that song with Levon's voice coming. Well, Rick Danko will sing and and then Levon will come in with a totally, you know, his, his voice is so different and just the um, the juxtaposition of their two voices. I just think it's beautiful. So um, that's something different. And I hope that your listeners will um, take the opportunity to listen to some of those later band albums, um, you know, in the 90s. Well, Sandra, thank you very much for taking the time to do this interview with us. Uh, I know I enjoyed myself, and I hope uh, all the listeners of the podcast enjoy this interview. And uh, have a great rest of your day. That was my interview with Sandra Tuzzi, author of Levon, From Down in the Delta to the Birth of the Band and Beyond. As you heard at the top of the interview, the book was supposed to come out in June, but now is coming out in August. You can get your hands on a hard copy edition or a Kindle edition uh, very soon. I believe it comes out August 25th, 2020. And there really isn't much to be said about this book other than the fact that it was so great to read. Um, as somebody who's read pretty much every book you can and every type of article that you can about the band, um, I was expecting myself to know a lot of the information there, but Sandra does a really great job at talking to people and gleaning stories that I had never, ever heard before. And you're going to really, really enjoy that. So thank you again to Sandra and thank you again, everybody who's listening to the podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. I really hope you go out and buy Sandra's book on August 25th, get a nice hardcover edition of it. You know, grab a drink and go out on your deck and take a read because it's, it's really worthwhile. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.